0: Welcome back to Episode 9 on The Wealth of Self. In today's podcast, I'm honored to be joined by a pilot of the United States Air Force, Lieutenant Colonel Catherine Nelson. Growing up in College Station, Texas, Katherine adopted an early love of flight, and her desire to soar among the clouds never truly stopped. She remembers being awestruck by the weightless appearance of hot air balloons as their flames pushed them higher and higher. Catherine got her first real taste of airtime during the summer after her 7th grade year, when her dad saw an ad in the local paper for a company giving free biplane rides. She luckily caught the last slot before the show left town, and holds this memory dear as one of the defining moments that solidified her desire to fly. With parents who preach the importance of self-solution and making your own way, Catherine knew she would need to carve her own path if her dream career was ever going to become a reality. She found this path through the ROTC program at the University of Oklahoma, which kicked off her incredible career with the U.S. Air Force. From flying in Timbuktu in southwestern Mali, yes, the real Timbuktu, to landing on dirt strips in the jungles of Liberia and flying the hamlet of the Arctic Bay in Nunavut, Canada, Catherine has traversed the world. Now, as she enters the final portion of her 20-year tenure, the sky is the limit for what's to come. Thanks for tuning in on this episode of The Wealth of Self. Welcome back from the intro. This is episode nine on the wealth of self. And I've got a special guest in here today, Catherine, somebody I was introduced to by the one and only Phil Green. He has been an incredible resource as far as being introduced to new individuals in the building, which is quite special. But um, I was very intrigued by your story and getting to read through your form. Uh, hearing a little bit more from you about your journey and about your story. And uh, you're in the United States Air Force, which has a special place in my heart. I didn't spend a lot of time with them, but it was an early, early piece in my career that uh, that it, it showed me that you know these are great people who do a lot of wonderful work in the United States and abroad. So I wanted to turn it over to you for your introduction. Welcome to the studio and thanks for taking the time.
1: Of course. I'm Thrilled to be here. I've never done uh, an interview quite like this, so this is um, quite exciting. But, um, but yes, uh, my name's uh, Catherine Nelson. I'm a lieutenant colonel in the in the U.S. Air Force. I'm active duty. Um, just moved to Washington D.C. about eight months ago. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's kind of where I am now.
0: Yeah, and when so in the Air Force or in the Armed Services in general, a lot of a lot of folks in that position are moving so much. Mm-hmm. So, previous to this installment, where were you?
1: Okay, so I can, I'll go in reverse order. So before uh, my current assignment, I was in Ghana, um, Accra, Ghana. I was stationed at the embassy there yeah. um, as a, the Air Force attache. We also uh, were very lucky to have an airplane there, uh, a C-12, which is what I'm currently flying here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to fly that all over West and Central Africa. I've yeah. got stories for days. Oh my gosh. Um, before that, I I was actually here in D.C. for eight months for training to do that job. Mm-hmm. And then prior to that I was also doing more training. I was doing language training at um Defense Language Institute and Naval Postgraduate School. And then before that I was flying the KC one thirty five, mm-hmm. um, which is a big aerial refueler, um, air to air refueling uh and I was stationed in Southern California at March for that. And then, uh, Mildenhall England was my very first uh, duty station after, after pilot training. So that's kind of my career in a nutshell in reverse order.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, so a question for me more informational I guess, but it seems like DC is in many ways sometimes the last stopping place for a lot of people in their career. Do you feel like that resonates or what's next for you after this? I, maybe it's not totally within your control, but what is what does that look that's like? That's a
1: great question. So so yes, DC does kind of have that like um feel of that's where lieutenant colonels and colonels go to die. Like they put them <laughs> out to pasture, you know. That's that's really more true for note. people going to the Pentagon. My my job is not to say that working at the Pentagon is horrible it's it's not pentagon is is a great place i i love the food court myself
0: it was cool the most dangerous hot dog stand in the world it's right there in the middle at least that's what they quote you know say i uh, can imagine
1: i can imagine um so uh, anyway i i didn't think being at the pentagon was all that bad but um but no my particular um assignment now is very niche um uh it's there are only about 60 of us through all the branches of service that do what we do, which mm-hmm. is flying C-12s around the world. Um, our training just happens to be here um, in Washington D.C. Mm. So yeah, it's, so I would say like the whole, uh, you know, the trope about the O5s and stuff, or O5 as a lieutenant colonel, mm-hmm. um, is not true in my in my case, but it there's certainly some truth to it
0: when it comes to your ranking. Is there another level? I mean, you're in year 16, as you mentioned, and you expressed also after that, your 20 mark, you know, you're not sure exactly what is to come, but yeah. you are excited for what that might look like. Yes.
1: Yeah, so I plan to retire right at 20 years. Mm. I, um, I love what I'm doing and I can't imagine promoting and, and going on and doing anything else. I feel like this is going to be a real high to go out on. Yes. So I'm very happy with, um, you know, with making O5 and getting out at 20 years, I'm, I'm totally happy with that. Um, I'll retire when I'm 43 mm-hmm. and I can go off and have a whole new career. And I'm excited about that. I don't know what that looks like yet. I, I really hope to keep flying. Um, I don't, I don't know if commercial airlines are, is quite for me. I haven't made that decision, but, um, I would like to keep flying in, in some capacity.
0: Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Very Mm -hmm. exciting. And I think there's a world of possibility after you're out. uh, I think veteran preference for so many career fields, whether you do that here in D.C. or you go elsewhere, you're going to be high on that list. Yeah. And I'm not
1: ruling out taking a non-flying job and then but continuing flying as a hobby. Um, So I just know that I I never want to stop being around aviation. So if I don't find the right job, you know, flying job, I would be willing to try something completely new, but just keep flying on the side because it is my absolute passion in life.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it's a special sensation. Mm -hmm. Well, let's take it back and go back to your origins. The wealth of self is is positioned in a way that we want to know, you know, what has made you who you are? What are those lessons that you've picked up along the way? Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you've had a diversity of experiences Mm -hmm. in your life that I'm sure listeners would be really excited to know about. But going all the way back, where where did you grow up and, and what was the family structure like?
1: So I grew up in College Station, Texas, uh, which is home of Texas A&M University. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for the university, the town would not exist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did not go to A&M, though. My entire family went to A&M. Mm-hmm. I swear they bleed maroon. Um, but growing up in that town, I always knew I wanted to experience something different. I mm-hmm. didn't necessarily need to go very far from home. I just didn't. I I just didn't want to be in College Station. You know, in that my critical college years. So, um, but anyway, my, yeah, so I grew up in call station and I've got one younger sister and we're very close. We are completely different, which Mm -hmm. I think is why we are so close. Um, but I, I really can't remember a time in my life where I didn't want to fly. I just Mm. kind of knew that it's what I wanted to do. And my like earliest memory and granted this is very fuzzy because I was only four years old at the time, but, um, my mom and my uncle, so her brother had a friend who owned a hot air balloon mm-hmm. and um it was like a privately owned kind yeah, of yeah, he like he just owned it and flew it it's I still oh. remember what it looks like it was green and green and gold and um yeah. uh, my mom would be like, oh, there's mr. wallings uh." hot air balloon flight. I was like, Oh my God. Anyway, there's a,
0: like a license for that. There is yeah. a license, okay. a balloon
1: license. Yes. Um, and it's actually not very hard to get. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my mom and my uncle took me to go help, you know, kind of tag along with them helping out with mm-hmm. the, uh, the balloon and the balloon festival. And I just remember, like, I, I have these vague memories of just looking up and being awestruck on the fire. Like, you mm-hmm. know, you pull the pull the thing for the fire and that's what made it go. Yes. And I was just like in awe that something could leave the ground. Yeah. And so I was obsessed with hot air balloons. Um, as a, as a child, I actually didn't take my first hot air balloon ride until I was 31 years old, Wow! but I was upset. I'm still just awestruck by hot air balloons. Um, so that was like my first intro into like flight, I Mm -hmm. guess. And then, um, another like childhood memory that really stuck out to me was in, uh, seventh grade. It was the end of the school year. Mm -hmm. I think school had been out for just a week or so. And my dad had seen in the newspaper that this company was coming up and come to our local airport to give free (laughs) biplane rides. And a a steerman, if you know what a steerman is, it's a trainer for in between the war years and world war (laughs) two. And, um, I saw it actually flying in the afternoon or I guess late morning. It was flying like low over the trees. And my dad's like, oh, they were advertising for free rides. And I begged him to take me to the airport. (laughs) So we went to the airport and I got the very last slot. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think they added that slot for me because I was this like, really young seventh yeah. grade girl who Super was just, enthusiastic. yes, I was so enthusiastic. <laughs> and so, and that airplane is, uh, was not equipped for night flight. Um, mm-hmm. there are certain things airplanes need in order to fly at night. Mm-hmm. This airplane did not have that. And they, so they had to get back to Houston before sunset, but they really pushed it with me. And yeah. oh my gosh, they let me like, take control of the plane. Right. And I was flying around and, and as steerman, the, um, the control is actually a big old stick that comes mm. up in between your legs and it looks like a broom handle. Mm-hmm. And so I was like holding on to this <laughs> broom handle, you know, going over the river and, Oh, it was just such a wonderful feeling. And, and, um, and at that time I was a little bit, um, uh, fearful, I, not of flying, but I was supposed to have my tonsils out like mm. the next day or the day. Yeah. Uh, two days later. And I was really nervous about it. I never had surgery before. and, and But I remember that, that plane ride being just an escape mm-hmm. from my fear of this minor surgery coming up. And anyway, so I would say the hot air balloon and the biplane were the two experiences that really just stuck out to me a lot and really like provided the motivation to, to yeah. keep pursuing it.
0: Yeah. It's that, I think it's that sensation of weightlessness yeah. that's so alluring to so many people. The first time you get on a plane and you yeah. feel that lift off, it's just like otherworldly. I, I, I did a scuba diving certification and one of the, the most magical sensations is being down there and just feeling nothing and everything at the yeah. same time. And, and it's it a gets, really unique sensation. It gets
1: addicting and it's almost like a therapy, you mm-hmm. know, it's yeah. It is when you are just completely away from your everyday life, your everyday sensations to do something, yeah. whether it's in the air, and the sea. And in fact, um, flying and boating have a lot in common. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Well, when you look at your your family, I, I see so often, and, and this is something I see a lot of times, I do a lot of work for the American Veterans Center in the, uh, in the D.C. area, mm-hmm. and just here the most incredible stories and these gentlemen and women are, you know, these are world war two uh, involved in those kind of conflicts now getting into Vietnam and and now more modern conflicts. Yeah. But, um, a lot of times they're coming from a lineage of people in their family who served before them. Mm-hmm. What did that look like for you? Did you have others who inspired that path in some ways?
1: Um, my grandfather was in world war two, but I think everybody my age had a grandfather in world war two. So much. I, yeah. you know, um, my dad is a farmer and my mom, uh, worked, uh, in education. Mm-hmm. So neither one of them were in the military and, but they are really of the age where, um, Vietnam war was raging and people weren't raising their hands all that much to go. in. in fact, right. the draft when my dad was 17 is when the Vietnam war draft stopped. Mm-hmm. He had two brothers who were drafted to Vietnam. So the military was not uh, central to my growing up at all. Mm-hmm. Um, college station is a very military friendly town because mm-hmm. A&M is a very conservative, um, university. They have the core cadets, they have mm-hmm. a huge ROTC program. So like military appreciation is something I did grow up with right. in my town, yeah. but in my family, um, I didn't really have any, um, I don't want to say like role models to follow in their footsteps. Sure. Cause that sounds kind of lame, but Um, But yeah, neither one of my parents, my close aunts and uncles, none of them were in the military. Mm -hmm. So when I started expressing interest and wanting to join the military, I think it kind of took my parents by surprise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things I wanted to hone in on is that it, it sounds like you had a very good relationship with your, your parents. Yes. And there were some very sort of like a blue collar hard work attitude that was instilled within you at an early age. And I wanted to hit on that just a little bit because I think just based on meeting you and my brief first impressions, I can tell there's a hard work <laughs> ethic there <laughs> Yeah, and you just get the job done. What, what did that look like in your early years? Those messages that they were sharing with you?
1: Absolutely. I have a couple of funny anecdotes about that so my very first w-2 paying job mm-hmm. like not babysitting or whatever like my very first actual job i made five dollars and 40 cents an hour nice um working in the cotton fields at texas a&m wow because my dad managed the farm out there mm-hmm. so uh, my first job was working cotton my sister's first job was working corn and sorghum and i sh- i definitely had the better of the two jobs Yeah. <laughs> um so i remember that just being a really uh uh like it was just intense manual labor in the heat Mm -hmm. of the Texas summer. Um, and I remember just coming home exhausted and even at, I was 15 at the time. And I remember thinking, Oh my gosh, like this is why people need to stay in school. (laughs) So they don't have to rely on these kinds of jobs because this is terrible. Um, so fast forward, um, so that was, you know, in the summertime. Mm-hmm. So then it came uh, tax season in the springtime mm-hmm. and I had a, w- a job with the W-2. There I had go. to file taxes. First experience. <laughs> yes. And I just thought, okay, taxes are complicated. My parents will probably do them for me. Yeah. And nope. My mom, uh, She uh, she handed me the e-filing instructions mm-hmm. and our cordless phone. Mm-hmm. She's like, here you go. Figure it out.
0: Yeah, and they're not generally the uh, most user friendly.
1: No, and this this was the e-file that you did over the phone. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you are old enough to remember. Like e-filing now is clearly online, but yeah. there was a time when you could e-file over the phone, and it was a lot of button pushing. Mm-hmm. But luckily, my WT was so easy; it wasn't a big deal. But it was a big deal at the time because I just I looked at this like book booklet of instructions and the phone. And I was like, well, I guess, I guess I'm guess i doing this. And I got it done that afternoon. She was like, just follow the instructions. You can figure it out. Yeah. I told my mom about this, reminded her about this story last summer when I came back from Ghana, I was like, do you remember, do you remember this? She was like, <laughs> no, but that sounds like something I would do.
0: <laughs> so her recollection may was a little different than yours.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was. I mean, they made me shop for my own car insurance. They're like, you want to drive here? You got to find your own car insurance. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'll, we'll, we'll give you a couple of companies to try, but you got to call and get the quotes and they made me do everything. And, yeah. um, uh, so that was, that was definitely, a. They, they taught my sister and me how to survive on our own. Like, yeah. you know, they were there to catch us, mm-hmm. but they wanted us to, to do things on our own. Mm-hmm. And, um, I remember I will never forget the day, the day I got dropped off at school, I ended up going to university of Oklahoma. The mm-hmm. day my parents dropped me off, my mom was visibly upset, which really upset me because my mom is not an emotional person at sure. all. But this, like, got to her, which surprised me. Uh, but my dad, the last thing he said to me was, All right, Catherine, um, you know, if it gets tough, you can always come home, but it ain't gonna be free. <laughs> he like, <laughs> walked out the door, it's <laughs> like, Okay, I guess I'm doing this. <laughs> so, anyway, I mean, <laughs> I. I tell those stories because not because my parents hated me by any means. I think they, they did those things and said those things because they loved me of and course, yeah. they didn't want to cuddle me. And mm-hmm. I feel like they really did um, set me up for success.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of value in that because yes. when you're, you know, tasked with figuring things out on your own, you learn pretty quickly how yeah. to do it and how to be at least, you know, somewhat good at it. Mm-hmm. And so your, your tax story resonates heavily with me right now. as a business owner. I've got, I oh, can
1: imagine geez, your taxes,
0: and all these different things coming in. So yeah. it's like, um, you know, it's one of those things where you just have to work through it. But, mm-hmm. uh, I think those values, uh, have continued to serve you. And, and that's sort of the segue point into some of these following stories. You're now entering a university system. It sounds like you sort of stayed in the Midwest. I uh, did yeah. not,
1: not because I wanted to, mm-hmm. I really wanted to go to either U- UW Madison or university of Virginia. Gotcha. Um, But when I realized how much those schools were gonna cost with Mm -hmm. out-of-state tuition, I I just couldn't, um, I decided not to even apply. Because Mm -hmm. I knew if I had gotten in, there was no way I was gonna be able to afford it. And it would have been even more crushing to me to know that like, oh, I got into my dream school, but I can't go for financial reasons. And I was not about to take out all kinds of student loans to go to my dream school when I could get a perfectly good education Mm -hmm. at another school. So I ended up at the o- o- University of Oklahoma. I did get an Air Force ROTC scholarship. Um, it did cover all of my expenses at OU. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, it was great. And OU at the time, OU's out-of-state tuition was cheaper than A&M's in-state tuition. Really? Okay. And both my parents worked for A&M. And at the time, I don't know what it's like now. This mm. was 20 years ago now. Um even though both of them worked for AM, had been working there for decades at that mm-hmm. point, um, they got no incentive to send their children there. So really? like no discount on tuition, nothing. Oh. I don't know if it's the same way now, but it was definitely that way when I graduated. And I remember my mom being quite upset about that, which, yeah. you know, and if, yeah. if a had incentives, I would have thought more about going because mm. it would have been a afford- more affordable all the way around. Right. But anyway, we ended up at OU and, uh, it was good. It was fine. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, it was, you know, it wasn't my actual dream school, but I feel like I made the most of it.
0: Yeah. Well, that was certainly the case. I went to Mizzou in M-I-Z, my university. Uh, Big 12 university. Well. well. they were Big 12. I think they're SEC at this point. Oh, they so are they SEC. So they yeah.
1: OU was about to join SEC. Are they really? Yeah. And uh, uh and is already SEC. Yeah, they were so, part of it, yeah.
0: all, I think, all along. But yeah, um, that was a situation where even within the other University of Missouri school systems, I knew of certain kids who had parents that were in the university system as, as faculty, uh, members and uh, there was a discount there, yeah. even though they weren't in Columbia. You know, they could have been yeah. in St. Louis or, or in KC or mm-hmm. wherever they were, and they still got a little bit off of the tuition. So I was surprised to hear that. Yeah,
1: uh, it was a surprise to us too.
0: Yeah. Well, well, uh, another point I want to hit on too is that it, for me, and I can only speak from my experience, but coming out of high school and going into college, it was a kind of a question mark for me. I had a variety of interests, and so it was really hard to nail down something where I was like, "That's what I want to be." You know, spearheading. Mm-hmm. What did that look like as you started to enter college? Obviously, if you're going the ROTC route, you kind of know that path. But- I
1: knew I wanted to be a pilot, and I was really in the math and science um, as a high schooler. Yeah. I did well in high school, but um, my interests at the time were really in math and science, mm-hmm. and um, one day after her... I won't ever forget this moment either. One day after church, we were like milling around outside the church and I happened to look up and I saw all these like really low hanging clouds and they looked really cool. And mm-hmm. that was like, I thought, Oh my gosh, I should major in weather. Like I love it. I love weather. <laughs> and like, I was a huge weather nerd growing up along with aviation. I I used to track all the hurricanes that would come into the Gulf of Mexico each yeah. summer. And anyway, I was like, oh, that would be the perfect major. Got to OU, didn't realize how hard it was going to be. It was so hard. I actually tried to quit my junior year, but because I had already been through um a lot of training with ROTC, they're mm-hmm. like, "Nope, you're locked into your major because right. this is what the Air Force pay is. More for pay, it, right? Yeah, this yeah. is what we're sending you to school for." And I was like, "Oh my god, I I, oh, I had a fit. I wanted to switch to engineering, and they are like no mm-hmm. like, 'No, like you're,' and they warned you. They they warned us too. Like mm-hmm. I knew that there was a slim to none chance I was going to be able to change my major after my sophomore year. Yeah, um, but I persevered and I got the degree but um I looking back on it now like I don't have a lot of regrets in life mm-hmm. but choosing that as my major was something I wish I could yeah do over yeah <laughs> yeah
0: no you mentioned that it was extraordinarily difficult and it was, yeah. was it mostly the sciences and the mathematics it was, in it that made it tough or? yeah
1: so I'm fine with math on its own mm-hmm. but what I'm not fine with is is putting the math with the physical concepts mm-hmm. and because OU is, um, they do like theoretical meteorology, research meteorology. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not, um, like weather channel and Al Roker and sun and clouds and, you know, whatever it's, it's really, it's, uh, it's really research based and you know, there's lots of theory that goes into Mm -hmm. it. So, um, so I struggled with putting all the concepts together, like mm-hmm. physics separately, math separately, but putting it all together and basically using math equations to describe what is going on in the atmosphere yeah. just was a bridge too far at right. times. And so there were some classes I struggle with to be perfectly honest, but, um, I probably would have been, would have done much better as just a straight up math major mm. or, um, or, a uh, like, um, geology Mm -hmm. or geophysics like some other earth science i think would have been much better but it's fine the meteorology degrees i've actually used it yeah Um, that's my
0: next question how how effective has it been for you
1: um i mean it's probably a good thing i stuck it out because i do use meteorology um concepts all the time um Mm -hmm. you know we we are required before we go fly to get a weather brief right and there are times where i'll look at the weather brief and i'm like man i just I don't know if I quite agree with this, and I'll look at my, you know, look at what I know to look at, and mm-hmm. um, and I'll just keep it in the back of my head because we have to go with whatever the Air Force Weather Squadron gives us. But in the back of my head, I'm like, no, I think this is going to be different. I would say, for the most part, I think the weather squadrons do really well, mm-hmm. and I get really mad when other pilots say, "Oh, those weather guessers," and I'm like, you have no <laughs> idea how hard weather how is. Like, just yes. stop. Yeah. So I stick up for the weather squadron all the time, but. There are times when I disagree with their forecast, but that's why it's called a forecast. Like nobody actually right, knows how it's gonna still, be. Yeah. So, um, so yes, I do actually use it every time I go fly.
0: Excellent. Mm-hmm. I, so one of the things that's a part of uh, a commercial drone flight, mm-hmm. which is obviously a very low level sort of example here, but you know, you're required to learn how to read some of those weather yes. reports. So that was one of the most fascinating things as I was studying for that test. Mm-hmm. Um, the part one Oh seven. Yeah. So
1: quite a bit of the ground, uh, knowledge for the part one Oh seven is what you would learn as a private pilot. Yeah. Yeah. So you're yeah. like, you're we halfway there.
0: There we go. Hey, <laughs> maybe after this video production thing's <laughs> over,
1: I know aviation's your next career. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, when it comes to your experience in college uh, with ROTC, mm-hmm. how how did how did that go over for you? Do you feel like it was overall quite uh, informative, or do you you know reflecting on it, is there any regret there, or mm-hmm. what what kind of lessons you take away from that experience?
1: I would say doing ROTC was one of the best decisions of my life. So maybe awesome. meteorology was one of the worst <laughs> decisions, but joining yeah, ROTC yeah. was. I think one of the best decisions I ever made. Um, I made so many good friends mm-hmm. in, in, a uh, in that program. Um, the program taught me a lot of leadership, mm-hmm. um, principles and it set me, you know, on my air force career. And, um, it was so nice. <laughs> like my senior year, I actually did five years of, of, uh, undergrad at OU, mm-hmm. my senior year and my fifth year, um, all my, uh, classmates who weren't in ROTC were, um, Having to go to job fairs and do job applications, and I didn't have to do any of that. So Like, <laughs> yeah. even if say I didn't get a pilot slot, I knew that I had a guaranteed job waiting for me mm-hmm. in some capacity, and mm-hmm. that was that was a huge relief. But um, I am a huge proponent of ROTC, and I I never once wanted to go to the um, service academies. I didn't even I didn't even try to apply. Yeah. Um, I knew that it was just not the um, college experience that I wanted, mm-hmm. and I would say like. ROTC, I think if you have to choose between the two, ROTC actually prepares you better for life after college because at the service academies, yes, your life is tough there and getting yelled at a lot and um, you don't really have too much of a life while you're there. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, it's it's such a regimented existence for those four years that you're there, you don't really have the opportunity to see what it's like to pay your own bills or manage money or that kind of thing. Um, I mean, there are pluses and minuses to both ways to getting into military. Plus you also have officer training school, which is the the third way. Um, but I think for me, ROTC was, um, definitely the the best way to go,
0: yeah, and I think, like you said, it's it's full of so many social sort of interactions yeah. as well. One I, of my good friends, Taylor Marino, who's now a flight instructor, I think down in Texas. Yeah, that's cool. In Lubbock, is there something in Lubbock?
1: Well, Texas or, Tech University is in Lubbock. Yeah, so, yeah. I wonder
0: if it's there. But um, it, just an incredible guy, and he had a great college experience outside of ROTC. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, he got to go on all these excursions, all these training, you know, seminars, whatever yeah. it was that they were involved in. He got sort of both worlds in, yeah. in, in a way.
1: Well, and there – so, yes, th- there were so many ROTC members at OU who were also in fraternities and sororities and other clubs on mm-hmm. on campus. And then within ROTC, you have clubs within it, like you have Arnold Air Society and right. Silver Wings, and, and they're just community outreach sort yeah. of things. So they're – it just – It was just such a great, like, all-around experience. Yeah.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Wealth of Self podcast. The audio-only version of these stories can be found on nearly every major podcast streaming platform from Spotify to Apple Podcasts and many, many more. Your support as we grow this movement is immensely appreciated. You can help us out by leaving a rating, writing a short review, or even sharing it with a friend or a loved one who you feel would benefit from hearing these stories. Finally, if you're interested in seeing the video interview that accompanies these stories, head over to our YouTube channel or our Facebook page for the full viewing experience. While you're there, don't forget to leave a like, subscribe or follow the channel, and share your thoughts in the comment section. For additional information on how to support the Wealth of Self, head over to www.wealthofself.com. Dot com. Now, let's get back to the interview. So, you're now exiting the sort of academic world with ROTC, and you're entering the professional space now with the United States Air Force. What does that transition period look like, and and how do you start to navigate those waters? Maybe you don't have much say in where you go, obviously, but what did it look like for you?
1: Um, so, I uh, got my pilot slot out of out of college. Um, there are only a couple of um, Air Force bases that do, that does um, undergraduate pilot training or mm-hmm. UPT is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up going to Vance Air Force Base in Enid. I think from what I could tell, they, um, the Air Force just, you know, if you're, graduating college and you're you're near an air force base they just send you there it's cheaper which i told gotcha. it's totally fine like i didn't need to go to columbus mississippi or yeah. um uh down to texas you mm-hmm. know i was right there so i went to vance air force base um with an enid which is in northern oklahoma mm-hmm. it's about an hour and a half north of oklahoma city oh
0: so you were pretty close oh was pretty close yeah. yeah it
1: was it was an easy move um so i did pilot training there um and then uh which is i mean talking a little bit about that it's at the time it was a 54 week program. I don't know again I don't know what it's like now but mm-hmm. um and it is the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. It is like it was the most roller coaster year of my life um and I I I can't honestly say I loved every minute of it mm-hmm. but I um I did well in pilot training and as I was there, I knew that I was in the right place. I just had this feeling like, yep. Okay. I'm going to be good at this. I'm going to make myself be good at this. And yeah. like, I want to be here. So, uh, that was, that was that. And, um,
0: was there a moment during that period of time where that clicked for you? Was it early on halfway through? It was
1: when we, okay. So at the time it was six weeks of ground training before mm-hmm. you go fly the T six, which is this little, um, single which at the time as a student, it looks like a monster of an airplane because the only thing we've flown up to that point were like the diamond DA 20 or a Cessna or whatever. So this thing looks like a bear. Um, it was, we were, um, moving all of our stuff into our flight room for the very first time. And it was kind of late in the evening, like six o'clock in the evening. And, uh, I just remember being really tired, uh, shoving all my stuff in my locker and just kind of looking around the squadron, like oh, I can't believe I'm here right now. Like it was this, <laughs> like, oh my gosh, a dream come true. Like I'm about to start the flight line in United States Air Force pilot training. Like yeah. how did I get here? And I was, and I had, you know, the first day on the flight line is just a bunch of yelling and whatever. And like, I, you know, we had all endured a very long day of, um, you know, finger wagging and yelling mm-hmm. and whatever. And, but I just remember thinking like, you know what? Yell at me all you want, like criticize me all you want with flying, like, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it. Yeah. I am going to I'm make happy it. I'm here. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. So whenever you're now approaching the end of that year, you know, it's, you've got a lot of highs, a lot of mm-hmm. lows. Is there anything you're taking out of that emotionally lesson wise where you're like, this is reinforcing my belief or it's, it's, it's training me for that next step. What did that look like?
1: Um, so when I left pilot training, I uh, got assigned to the KC 135 at Mildenhall. Hall. It was my first choice. Mm-hmm. I was so excited to go to England, but I had no idea really what I was getting myself into um, with not just flying the tanker, but being overseas for my first um, duty assignment. yeah. So there was a lot of um, faking it till I make it kind of yeah. <laughs> going yeah. on. Um, and, you know, you had mentioned like, oh, do you have say in where you go? And the answer is uh, yes, you have the opportunity to tell the military, I would like these positions. Right. But they, um, you don't always get what you want. Yeah. I would say the personnel team in the air force, they do try to get you Mm -hmm. what you want. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't work. In my case, it worked out and I was very lucky and blessed and happy to get my, my first choice.
0: Is that a majority of the time or you find that most people who are in that position are not quite where Um, they want to be? I would
1: say like graduating pilot training. I think if people are reasonable on their dream sheets, that's what we call it. If they're Mm -hmm. reasonable about like where they are in the class lineup, you know, as far as like their class ranking and stuff, then I think they should get something that they are expecting. I would say, I think most people get something in their top five. Mm. Um, If you don't get something in your top five, that either means um, they just didn't have the airplane available that you wanted to fly, Mm. or maybe you were a little bit lower in the class rankings than you thought, or, you know, things can be really competitive and there's a lot that goes into choosing who gets to go where. Um, so, yeah, so that, that brings me to my my first duty station in Mildenhall. Yeah. Uh, that was good. Uh, I did four years there, deployed a couple times. Um, I also uh, was g- medically grounded for almost a year while really? I was there with some stomach issues, which I uh, ended up ultimately having surgery for um, mm-hmm. in 2018. Mm-hmm. But that was, I was in Mildenhall from 2010 to 14, so I was kind of suffering with this stomach condition all the way until 2018 so they grounded me for a long time trying to figure it out and um they finally got me stable enough to Mm -hmm. where they're like okay like you're you're fine like just you can go fly but you got to stay on this medication and i'm like okay that's fine yeah so that was really challenging to get back in the cockpit and because i felt like i was kind of really on top of things when the medical issue happened Mm -hmm. and when i got back into the cockpit after 11 months it was a real blow to my ego. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, man, I remember being good at this and like, I can't do anything now is what it felt like. And, um,
0: were any of those symptoms that you were experiencing exacerbated by being in the air or no, Not not at all.
1: No. Um, it, it it ended up being a non-issue getting, I probably could have been back on flight status like six months prior to when Mm -hmm. the flight doc signed me off. But I think it was just one of those things where they just really couldn't pinpoint what it was. And, all three flight docs that were working on my case were just scared to put their name on the line until one of them was like enough (laughs) go. (laughs) So I'm really, really thankful to that flight doc for giving me a second chance. Um, so, uh, so I upgraded to aircraft commander late because of that year long grounding. Mm -hmm. Um, I upgraded to aircraft commander like just shortly before I left Mildenhall. Um, and then I went to California after that I went Mm -hmm. to March air force base and then I upgraded to instructor pretty quickly after I got there. So I felt like I finally caught back up to my peers once I got to Southern California.
0: Well, when you're, across the pond, you're overseas for the first time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an anxious kind of moment. I remember the first time I went abroad and I was just like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, it's a whirlwind. And, and I think one of my first really big trips was to Asia, which is a little extra layer of different. Yeah. yeah when you're in, you know, Europe, the theater is similar. You yes. know, there's a similar language. You're mm-hmm. not as bombarded by the differences. But what did that, uh, how did that shape out for you? Were you able to experience some of the English culture, go out and do a little bit of traveling yeah. with your peers what were some of those experiences while you were there, it was
1: great. I would move back to England in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, the only thing that I just really got to me was the weather, and it gets to people, um, all the time like just like the cloudy, r- yeah, the cloudy, <laughs> rainy. And what people don't realize is just how far north England actually is, mm-hmm. it's on par with middle Canada, it's not New England, like it's. Up there, mm-hmm. it's just the way the atmosphere works and the way the ocean currents are. It's a very temperate environment, so mm-hmm. you forget how far north you are. Mm-hmm. So that comes into play um, in the winter time, where if you go to work at eight o'clock and you leave at four, like you're you're likely not going to see the sun yeah. if you don't work with an office with a window. Right. Um, but conversely to that, in the summertime, um, one night I had just totally lost track of time, which is not like me at all. I'm usually very cognizant about mm-hmm. time. But I was just watching TV, just totally not understanding what time it was, and I was like, "Oh my God, why am I so tired?" It was still so, you know, sun outside, and I was like, "It's almost eleven o'clock. Oh my God!" Oh. So that was really funny. But um, so the summertime and summertime in the UK is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wintertime, you do have to kind of be cognizant, pay attention to your mental health. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And one of the things people say most about Europe is just how interconnected it is. They've got this beautiful uh, rail system that can get you, you know, to another culture, another country in the matter of hours. Did you have some opportunities to do exploration in that way?
1: Absolutely. Um, I went to Paris three times, all three times I took the Eurostar. Mm -hmm. Oh man, it's so much easier than flying. Um, I went all over Europe and that was Officially with work and um, with friends Mm -hmm. and uh, I saw a lot of you I didn't see every country in Europe that I wanted to um, but I I did get to see a a number of things and um, just yeah really amazing experiences. Yeah.
0: So you talk about after that experience, you're now relocating back into American culture. You're mm-hmm. going to California. It doesn't get much more American than that. <laughs> I know. Um, what What is that experience like? And, and is there a little bit of uh, you, you still have that wonderlust that you want to go out and see new places? I think the answer is yes, because yes. you end up going else elsewhere after.
1: Yeah. So the, the thing that struck me the most about getting to California was the abundant sunshine because I had just come from a place where was like it was cloudy yeah, all I the time. And shift. like shift. The one day a month that it, the sun is shining, like dudes are out in their, you know, their white tank tops yeah. and women are in their bikinis. I'm like, it's still <laughs> only 55 degrees, but apparently like the sun comes out and that's what you do. Um, and so the first couple of weeks I was in California, um, I just, I I felt like I had to be outside all the time mm-hmm. because that's the mindset you get in the so in UK. I. It's like you, the sun is shining, you're outside. And so I would just spend days outside. I'm like, What? why am I doing this? Like this, it's sunny here all the time. Like yeah. it was just this yeah. shift I had to make, but yeah, I was, I was happy to come back to the US. I, truth be told, I wanted to stay in Europe. I was actually trying to get into a different unit, um, mm-hmm. in Germany cause I really wanted to stay overseas. But, um, the opportunity came up to go to, Southern California. And I was like, well, that sounds pretty good too. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad, I'm glad I did it.
0: And what did your shift in responsibilities look like with that change? Is it just sort of a steady trajectory of growth over the course of your time in the air force? Or are there some little pivots and turns?
1: Yeah, it's pretty steady, especially if you are a pilot and you stay with the same airplane, Mm -hmm. like unit after unit, it's a pretty, um, steady climb. Mm -hmm. So when I got to my second, so Southern California, um, I had just a little bit more responsibility as far as the roles in the squadron, but it's very typical of your progression, like Mm -hmm. as you get promoted and get more hours and stuff. Um, Yeah. So I, yeah, I upgraded to instructor pilot there. Um, I thought I was going to be there for a lot longer than I was. Mm -hmm. um, But that's because I got picked up for foreign area officer, which has led me into like the next part of my, I would say like my 135 part of my career is like, part one. And yeah. then being a FAO or foreign area officer is part two. Mm-hmm. So, so now we're kind of in like a transition period.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When you're shifting back to California, is it sort of uh, is there a little bit of happiness involved? Obviously the weather shift is nice mm-hmm. and that's great for dopamine and everything else physiologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is, is there a little bit of a sensation like it's good to be home or h- how did you sort of handle that emotional shift going yeah, from sure. abroad to, to
1: America? So I, um, I didn't have any family in Southern California at the time. Right. Um, which is fine. I'm so used to not living around family that it didn't bother me at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I had heard really good things about the unit that I um, was transferring to, mm-hmm. and it all lived up to expectations. Yeah. And I w- the unit I was there. I was with there is a it was a really small active duty unit that was kind of attached to a much larger reserve unit. Right. Um, but you really from day to day, you couldn't really tell who was active duty and who was reserved. It was mm-hmm. just one little patch on their flight suit uh, that was different, but all the other patches were the same. Yeah. Um, and I made a lot of really good friends there friends. I still keep in touch with. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I was in California about a month ago and I saw quite a few of them while I was there and it was yeah, just nice to keep up. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say like, uh, I, I'm a, really good at introspection and handling my emotions. Like if I am feeling overwhelmed or if I am feeling, you know, extreme in a certain direction, I'm really good about taking a break and, Mm -hmm. and, and looking inside and okay, what's wrong? You know, how can we fix this? What, what's in my control? What's not in my control. So to me, the move to California was, um, was really not hard for me to Mm -hmm. do at all.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a there's a point in time while you're there where, you know, you know, you're ready for the next installment, which is going abroad again. Mm -hmm. So what what is that? uh, What does that transition look like for a second time now?
1: Yeah. okay. so that was a much bigger one. Um, So I got picked up for FAO. It was actually quite a surprise because I had. I had indicated on my paperwork with the personnel center, I had wanted to be a FAO and I'd had it on my paperwork for years. Mm. And like the years kept going by and I never (laughs) got the word. I'm like, Oh, I guess, I guess that ship has sailed. But no, I was briefing for a night flight um, with my crew. Uh, It was like five 30 in the evening. And uh, you know, we were doing our, our, um, our crew brief. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden the squadron commander like appears in the doorway and he's like, can I see you? I was like right now. He's like yes, right now. I'm like, "Oh my god, like this we're in the middle of a brief." Yeah. And uh and I was the first thing I thought it was I'm in trouble.
0: Yeah, yeah, so you're, because you're fearful of something Yes, I'm,
1: and I'm racking my brain like
0: what did I, I do have done wrong? Like what <laughs> what
1: is going on? And we get to his office and the director of operations, which is the number 2 in the squadron, was sitting in the squadron commander's chair. Mm. So like both of them are in the I was like, "Oh my god, I am in what did I do? I'm in so <laughs> much trouble." And, uh, the, the DO, the director of operations looks at me and he goes, do you speak any other languages? And I'm like, no, why? That was the first thing he said to me when Mm. I walked in the office. I was like, no, why? He goes, well, you just got picked up for foreign area officer. I was like, what? (laughs) I I was just, I like, I even like to this day, I get goosebumps when I remember that moment because it was such a shock. And, um, they, uh, they said, "Look, you know we've had other squadron members who have really wanted this and they never got it, but like you got it, and we we don't know what to do for you, but you have to let us know how to support you and like mm. what your next steps are because we have no idea how this mm-hmm. is supposed to work." And I, I just walked out of that office on cloud nine. I could yeah. not, be- I could not believe it. And so, um, in the following months, uh, I like the. Um, FAO office for lack of a better term um contacted me gave me all the paperwork mm-hmm. and that's where I had to indicate um where I wanted to go and I said uh you get six you get there's seven regions of the world that I could choose from but only six places on mm-hmm. the uh sheet and um Europe and China were not options for me because they were just closed for my year group. They mm-hmm. they were fully manned, so they didn't need um, anyone from my year group. So those mm-hmm. two weren't even options. Mm-hmm. And I put Africa number three, Sub-Saharan Africa number three, and that's what I ended up getting. Yeah. Um, uh, which was fine, I guess. <laughs> like, I really thought I was gonna get um, like Eurasia or something, mm-hmm. but no. I put yeah, Africa. Yeah. So it wasn't my last choice, but it wasn't my first choice. Yeah.
0: So is that position then generally referred to people who have a specialty in, in language skills? Or Yeah. So or- that's
1: why the DO is asking because a lot of FAOs already have language gotcha. training. I see. Um, but a lot of us didn't. Right. And, you know, I, I did indicate on my on uh, my application for FAO and on my other, like, you know, the the dream sheet where they ask mm-hmm. you where you want to go. I did say, oh, I, I have French in high school and, um, you know, I feel like. I knew enough, uh, a little bit of French to, I wouldn't say like I spoke the language Mm -hmm. or anything, but I definitely felt like I still had the familiarity with it. Um, so I ended up going to the full, up defense language Institute program in Monterey. Mm -hmm. And, um, It was a nine-month program, which is short compared to the other languages that they teach there, Mm -hmm. you know, like Chinese, Mandarin, Arabic, Tagalog, like they're much more intense. intense. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So my experience at DLI was a little bit more positive than maybe some other students Mm -hmm. in those harder programs, but Um. so, yeah, that's why the DO asked me about the whole language thing, uh, because language is a is a big part of FAO training.
0: Right. Well, walking it back just a little bit, you mentioned, you know, you get goosebumps to the day when that that relive you relive that moment in your head. What did it represent to you? What did it symbolize having that moment sort of come to fruition? You're like, this happened to me.
1: Uh, I just thought, you know what? I've had a lot of not great things happen in my life. Um, just some personal, personal tragedies that I was really having to, um, like pull myself up by the bootstraps. And when I got notified that I was picked up for FAO, I just thought, I felt like God was taking care of me finally. Like I have been in the trenches for months. Like just not, I was really having to rebuild my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, it was just like the first piece of good news I had gotten in about six months Yeah, and it just felt amazing. So extra special, extra special. Like I, I would have been really excited had all those personal things not happened to me. Right. But because I had gone through these really, really hard times, having something that good happen just meant even yeah. more to me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The valleys highlight the height of the uh, the mountain. Yeah,
1: so yeah, absolutely.
0: That's a big. That's a big thing. And um, you're now in a position where you're exiting your language training. Mm-hmm. And are you right away once you're done with that, you're shipping out kind of situation? No. What does so, it look like? um,
1: so after, so DLI Defense Language Institute and MPS Naval Postgraduate School are both in Monterey, California. So you're close by. So, nice. Yeah. So I made the. It's like a seven hour drive mm-hmm. from Riverside, California mm-hmm. to Monterey. Um, and I was in Monterey for about 15 months total between DLI and uh Naval postgraduate mm-hmm. school and starting DLI. That was like the, um, the first step in my, it, the FAO training I went through took two years. Mm-hmm. So it was language training, Naval postgraduate school, I'm sorry, in between language training and naval postgraduate school, I went to Africa for two months on an immersion training. Okay, I was so, supposed to be gone uh, for six, you. but um, but the way my training pipeline was, was shaking out with mm-hmm. my C12 training that I was going to have later on, they brought me back early. They're like, I well, see. you've had enough of an IRT immersion Yeah region regional training or whatever mm-hmm. it's called. We've had enough IRT like it's time to move out right, here right, right other training but I went to Sierra Leone and Senegal and Sierra Leone was my f- very first African country I ever set foot on yeah. and let me tell you it was I knew it was a rough place. Mm-hmm. And after a few weeks the uh the officer I was working for on my internship for lack of a better word she said, "You know, if you can handle Sierra Leone, you can handle just about anywhere." And I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, thank God!"
0: <laughs> yeah, it
1: was it. Oh, it was, it was rough. Um, and then from there, I went to Senegal and I did a, um, homestay with a French family mm-hmm. in in uh, Dakar, mm-hmm. and that was really interesting too. Um, and this is all part of the immersion. It was all experience part of the immersion. You. All part of training, yeah. preparing me to to move to Africa right. the following year, or yeah, the following year. Mm. Um. So my French was never better when I stayed with that family. Yeah, so people right. ask me how my French now, it, my French is now. And I'm like, well, I've regressed yeah. Let me just put it that way. Like I'm trying you to get back use into it. it. You lose it. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. But man, yeah, my French was pretty good when I was um, staying with that family in, in Dakar. Yeah. And then after that, I went to Naval Postgraduate School. Mm-hmm. That was only a three month program for me. Um, I didn't have to do the full master's degree because i already had a master's degree mm-hmm. in international relations so i just did a certificate program for sub-saharan africa studies it was, mm-hmm. it was pretty good and then after that i moved to dc for eight months of more training so mm-hmm. um i was i had mentioned i was the air force attache in ghana so i had to go to attache school mm-hmm. i had to learn how to fly a, a new airplane the c12 so that yeah. took some time so like all this training took right at 2 years. I yeah. moved to Monterey, California to start the training in July of 2017 mm-hmm. and I moved to Ghana in July of 2019. Yeah. So it was it was a long 2 years of um of really interesting and diverse yeah. training.
0: I mean, what a blessing you think about yeah. what other careers could provide you with that level of diversity in your skill set and it's it probably pretty limited. It, so.
1: Absolutely. And I just I'm so thankful I said yes to this opportunity because mm-hmm. I could have easily just stayed on the, stayed on the track flying yep. KC-135 for the rest of my career. And I've been fat, dumb and happy, you know, but <laughs> I, and I would have had a great career. Yeah. Um, but I took this huge off ramp from the standard cookie cutter steps right. and it was a risk, um, to do that. Cause I didn't know if I would like it. I didn't even know if I would continue flying. Mm-hmm. I didn't get that notification until, um, like six weeks before I moved to Monterey and uh, I was planning on taking a couple years off from flying and coming back to it but luckily I was able to stick with it and uh, it all just totally worked out but um, it just kind of amazes me when I talk to other my fellow like former tanker pilot or my tanker pilot friends who are still doing it I was like Mm -hmm. do you ever want to do something like this and they're like no I'm I'm pretty happy with, with being a tanker. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Like yeah, yeah. I guess you make your decisions. I make my decisions, right. but I, I'm just so thankful to, um, who have, to have had like all this extra training. Um, yeah, I just, it's been great.
0: Yeah. And people, you, you hit on a really good point. There are people who have varying levels of comfort with how far they push or saying yeah. yes to certain opportunities. Mm-hmm. And that's been one of the things in my life too, where just saying yes can open these crazy doors yeah. and you never know and, and you know there, there are negatives that accompany some of those there's silver lining all the way through but um, what I in my estimation it's always been one of those things where it's like what do you have to lose oh um, yeah that's so.
1: that's what we'll, that is exactly the line of thinking when they when my commander told me that I made feo and he was like do you want to accept it and I was like I don't have anything left to lose at this point so um let's do it <laughs> <laughs> let's do it so yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Well, when you're in Africa, you mentioned you know that's a very different experience. It's a different environment. You're seeing a different way of life in many ways. Describe some of that. What, what are those differences that you see, and what kind of picture does that paint in your head?
1: Sure. So I uh, I lived in Accra, Ghana, which is the capital. Um, I lived in a pretty nice uh, townhome in a four mm-hmm. uh, four unit compound with you're, other you're with other okay yeah uh, yeah with um, uh, there was a British couple and a Dutch couple and then like halfway through my time there another American couple moved in gotcha. so it was kind of this little international community it was really great yeah that's cool um, but the the biggest thing for me was um, just being around the poverty all the time people have this notion in their head that Ghana is amazing and it is but it's not as good as I think Americans built up in their minds like just outside the middle of Accra, there's abject poverty everywhere. Like, if you just see the capital, you would think, you know, this place is amazing. And it's on the up and up. But, like, just outside the capital is, you know, dirt roads, um, people who are going hungry. Mm. Uh, education is not compulsory after, I think, the seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just... Ghana still has a lot of problems and um, maybe not as many problems as its surrounding neighbors, but that doesn't mean you can discount the challenges that they face. Right. So living in a place where um, I probably would have been considered a one percenter. You know, Mm -hmm. the government paid for my really nice house. The government paid for a guard. Mm -hmm. Um, the only thing I had to pay for each month was my internet access. Like I was taken care of there. Yes. And even with my easy life there, it was still hard to Mm -hmm. like navigate to the grocery store Mm -hmm. without like falling into a ditch or, um, you're stopped at a red light and you have beggars on the street that'll just come up and knock on your window incessantly until you give them Mm -hmm. money. And it's like, I'm a very emotional person. I'm extremely empathetic and I really struggled the first few months. So like, I just want to help everybody. And then I had to get it through my head. Like you can't help everybody. Right. And so I picked one group that I would, um, make sure I gave money to almost every time I saw them. And those were the guys, they were all young men. Um, they were polio victims. Oh, Wow and uh ghana does not have social safety nets mm-hmm. uh like we do in the states or m- more notably in, in europe so if something happens to you you are on your own yeah and so these they were all young men i never saw young women doing this but um they would uh be at one particular intersection that mm-hmm. i drove through all the time and they would sit on these they look like skateboards mm-hmm. and they would tuck up their their withered legs underneath mm-hmm. them and they were like jacked. Their upper bodies were yeah. so jacked because they so they, they were paddling navigate. in between the cars. Right. And um on their hands they had the old foamy like flip-flops to yeah. protect their hands. Yeah. And the very first time this happened to me, um, I was just waiting at the red light. I did not see them sc- scooting around in between yeah. the cars and all of a sudden I see this hand just come up to the window, like <laughs> starting <laughs> banging on the window. I was like, oh, oh my God, like where's that hands coming from? And I looked down and <laughs> this guy's just waving at me and <laughs> I didn't understand at the time. So I just drove off. Um, but then they're like, Oh, those are the polio victims. And I'm like, okay. So I, I, um, gave them money almost every time. Usually it was small bills, but every once in a while I would give them like a big bill, which was a 20 and a Mm -hmm. 20 CD note at the time was like five bucks. So not, not a whole lot, but when I (laughs) would give them, would surprise them with a bigger bill. They would just like, thank you. Th-. You know, this, right. it, the, the, look of thanks on their face for me, de- doing something so small to give them the equivalent of five bucks yeah. was just something so easy for me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were the only group I decided early on. They were the only group I was ever gonna, um, give any sort of emotion mm-hmm. to because if I did that for every group, yeah, it was, you. yeah. Yeah. I mean the worst were the kids. I hated seeing the kids come up to the windows. I would first thing I thought was like, you should be in school but I knew also that there was an adult around the corner that was using those kids to get money. And so I, yeah, yeah, even though I didn't want to tell the kids, no, I knew it wasn't actually the kids
0: getting doing it. It was the adults
1: telling them to do it. So,
0: um,
1: but Ghana, I mean the, the people there, the Ghanaian people are so welcoming. Mm -hmm. Um, I, everywhere I went, I felt welcomed. Um, I had to get used to the spicy food. Mm (laughs) Uh, but the, I ended up really liking the food and, um, uh, my experiences in Ghana were mostly very positive. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I just, the way you painted that visually in my head, you know, I'm seeing these gentlemen on the skateboards. I think that would be such a striking visual yeah. to, uh, to capture photographically or through video or, or yeah. I don't know if that maybe that's been documented in some way, shape or form, but if you're
1: looking for a good, like documentary opportunity. The, the polio guys, I mean, that's all I ever called them. I I'm, I'm sure I hope yeah. that's not derogatory in any way, Um, but that's, that's kind of, you know, in my head, that's what I call them, but they were always so appreciative of, Mm -hmm. of just of everything, you know, and they had no other way to make money. Like they're just on there and you can tell that those guys had their own little community. Mm -hmm. It, to me, it seemed like they, they likely pooled all their money and Mm -hmm. divided it out. Like it was their way of survival.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting, but I will tell you what I, there were, even though Ghana was interesting and, and great experiences, I missed like my favorite dishes, you know, my favorite restaurants and, and, you know, the United States, and there are some really good restaurants in Accra. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: some really nice Italian places to, to be more specific. Interesting. Yeah. And a great Indian food place. I used to get Indian takeout all the time in Ghana. It was so good. Um, but yeah, towards the end, I was really just craving standard American fare. I was, I knew I was coming back to Washington DC and I was so excited about Mm -hmm. that. And, yeah
0: well you're now in a position where i think dc is your most recent uh stint and that was coming right off the heels of being in ghana yeah so now that you're here in dc what kind of responsibility shift are you experiencing if if any and and that now second time or third time where are we you, yeah you have this is another, my second time here another yeah. <laughs> readjustment into american life but this time it's or, a different coast
1: yeah so. yeah so um this time is a lot different so uh I am coming back to work for the same, um, uh, entity Mm -hmm. that I was working for in Ghana. Um, but this time I am the head of the C12 program worldwide. Um, so I, I come to this job with, I think more responsibility than I've ever had, um, in my whole career. And Mm -hmm. it's, it went from zero to 60. So like in Ghana, I was only responsible for myself and Mm -hmm. to get my work done each day. Um, but here I am responsible for, um, about a dozen and a half sites worldwide with yeah. airplanes and maritime assets. So, yeah. um, I'm going to learn how to drive a boat, uh, this spring. I'm really excited about that. Another skill. In the Another skill. <laughs> um, but it is, yeah, I, I really jumped off the deep end, uh, mm. into the deep end with this, uh, leadership position that I'm in now. And, um, I've been in it for about five months and, um, it has been wonderful. I have definitely made mistakes. Sometimes I feel like, I am a pinball and a pinball machine and like people just keep whacking me back into my lane, you know, (laughs) which is exactly what needs to happen for me to really chart the course for this Mm -hmm. organization. But I am just, I'm so thrilled for the opportunity and the challenge.
0: Yeah. So what does your time here look like? Do you have a bit of a roadmap to know uh, roughly how long? Because now in year 16, you are having to make some decisions about you're getting close to that 20-year mark and what does happen next. And we hit on that yep. early on, but it's real, very real now. It's, it's it is. Uh, coming up.
1: It def- I feel like I'm a high schooler who is getting ready to apply for college, but doesn't know what <laughs> he or she wants to do or major in. And you know, I was very strange as a child because I, I always knew exactly what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um but now i'm at this point in my life where i'm not really sure what i want to do and it's this is the first time in my life that i've ever experienced uncertainty like that Mm -hmm. um so i think the next four years are going to be very interesting for me and i have no fear about it Mm -hmm. i thought that if you know there ever came a day that i wasn't sure of myself and what i wanted to do that i would be really scared but i'm actually not i uh i i know i have faith that like whatever I choose to do is going to be the right decision. So I'm not scared about it. I, you know, I'm really looking forward to the future. Um, but yeah, so my, um, I'm hoping this should be my last air force assignment. Mm
0: -hmm. I'll have to, uh, there's no guarantee on that though. There's no guarantee. No.
1: I mean, it's, there's a good chance Mm -hmm. if I raise my hand and say, Hey, I can, I please stay on another year to retirement. I'm pretty sure they'll let me, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's, so there's no guarantee, but hopefully it will stay that way. Um, I am not from the East Coast, but I love the East Coast, so I would love... No matter what I want to do next, yeah. I want to stay in this part of the country.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to, to see around here. Yeah. It's, uh, being well, being from the Midwest, it's just like an upgrade on yeah. most fronts when it comes to activities or things that you can travel to relatively easily. Yeah, and so. Four
1: Seasons. I did not grow up with Four Seasons, mm-hmm. and I um, just... Totally thrilled with having four seasons. I experienced my first actual fall this past fall. Yeah, it's good it was one. just it, it was amazing. And cherry blossoms are about to right around the blue. corner. I'm like, oh, I already just can't. drained
0: the reflecting pool. It's an early sign. Yeah,
1: so. yeah. I just can't. I can't get over it. I'm so happy.
0: Yeah. Well, I know that there's some uncertainty involved with the next step, but if you've tossed around some ideas about what you think that next phase does look like, maybe there's a bit of a gap. You hear people all the time, you know, that after college or after high school, there's a gap year before they go into the next Mm -hmm. phase. Have you entertained anything like that?
1: I think a gap year would drive me crazy. A little detrimental on your (laughs) front. I think I would just not know what to do with myself because I'm one of these people who likes the idea of downtime more Mm -hmm. than I actually like the downtime. Yeah, me too. So like Friday (laughs) afternoons, I'm like, yes, I don't have anything planned this weekend. And then Saturday morning I wake up and I'm like, man, I don't have anything planned this weekend.
0: I need to be moving. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I might take a couple months off Mm -hmm. after I retire. Yeah. Um, but I've really been thinking a lot lately of, um, I've just been feeling this pull of wanting to make more of an impact in the world and yeah, I'm in the military and I've served my country and that's great, but I want to make more of an impact on people locally Mm -hmm. and um uh i really i don't know how i want to do that yet like do i want to get the high-paying commercial job to have the free time in order to spend more time in the community Mm -hmm. or do i want to make my next career move being in public service in that way like i i'm really tossed up about how um how i want that to look but i am feeling a very strong pull in wanting to um, give back more.
0: Yeah. Well, DC is the Mecca for associations and nonprofits and all of that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. So I think if you do desire to go that, that route, you have a plethora of options at your fingertips here. I think so. uh, Which is pretty special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even I would say also a lot of military organizations that have their fingers in those things as well. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. uh,
1: There's connections to be made and doors to be opened. And, um, I just feel like I'm in, I'm in the right place.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, the wealth of self, as we mentioned early on is all about lessons learned and what has made you truly wealthy and, uh, looking in the mirror now after 16 years serving your country, who do you see when you see that reflection?
1: Uh, I see someone who is very proud of being where she is because I did it all myself. Um, and I think my 12 year old self would be, just tickled pink that I am doing (laughs) what I'm doing now. I think she wouldn't quite believe it actually. Sometimes I wake up and I can't believe I I get to do what I, what I get to do. Um, But I know we had talked about, you know, how do you define wealth? And Mm -hmm. um, it is obviously to me, it's obvious. It's not just about having money. Like, yes, it's about having enough money to do what you want to do and not feel financial strain every time you wake up in the morning. But you know, if you don't have people in your life to share it with or another purpose or a higher calling to give back to your community, then, you know, what is the point of sitting on a pile of money? And so I, I think it's uh, it's, it's all encompassing. And, and while I am single and don't have like, you know, a special person in my life, mm-hmm. quote unquote, I still have my sister and my parents and my friends, and I still feel uh, very fulfilled. Yeah. So even though my life uh, may not look like your typical 39 year old, uh, American woman's life. Like, uh, I'm still just, um, you know, pretty happy with, with the way everything is. And, uh, it's sometimes it's kind of nice to be different, you know?
0: Yeah. And it sounds like you've done so much and you have so much more to do
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and, the, and the fact of the matter is that you've you've got a lot of road left so it's going to be exciting to see where you go with it
1: thanks I think so too
0: absolutely well thanks for taking the time to join me on the wealth of self mm-hmm. um, I know that with every story there are so many little facets that you don't touch and you don't get into but being able to share this message and, and at least people out there hearing you know the hard work the dedication that went into making your career what it is and what it will be moving forward I think that's an inspiring message for a lot of especially young women out there thank
1: you i that means a lot
0: absolutely thanks for your time thank you all right thanks for tuning in to the wealth of self podcast the audio only version of these stories can be found on nearly every major podcast streaming platform from spotify to apple podcasts and many many more your support as we grow this movement is immensely appreciated you can help us out by leaving a rating writing a short review or even sharing it with a friend or a loved one who you feel would benefit from hearing these stories. Finally, if you're interested in seeing the video interview that accompanies these stories, head over to our YouTube channel or our Facebook page for the full viewing experience. While you're there, don't forget to leave a like, subscribe or follow the channel, and share your thoughts in the comment section. For additional information on how to support the wealth of self, head over to www.wealthofself.com. Dot .com Thank you so much for your viewership. We'll see you on the next one.